Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So hey everybody, on July 20th of this year, that was just a few days ago, uh, it was the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. And last December, the Museum of Flight had reached out to us to see if we wanted to participate in a pod crawl that they have been doing as part of the celebration. And of course we said yes, because space history. Uh-huh. An area in which I think it's safe to say I have some rabies in the good sense. True, true. <laughs> Uh, I am a rabid fan of space history. But uh, since some of the other shows on their list were probably going to hit some of the the great history of the space program that's a little more recent, we thought that it might be fun if we reached farther back. Way back. So far back. Yeah, to the 16th century. (laughs) Uh, And into the, the 17th century. And talk about Thomas Harriet, who is a mathematician and astronomer who made some very significant telescopic observations some of which related to the moon. Uh, But his story is also tied to so many other notable historic things, including a lot of business with Sir Walter Raleigh. Uh, And he is really not a household name like a lot of his contemporaries are, even though he was neck and neck with them in terms of discoveries. And we're going to talk a little bit about why that's the case at the end of the episode, and we'll give you more information on that pod crawl at the end of the episode. Yeah. In case you want to check out the other work that people have been doing to celebrate this 50th anniversary. Yeah, a lot of cool podcasts Mm -hmm. right about now. So, Harriet was born in Oxford, England, probably in 1560 during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. But we don't know much at all about the first 20 years of his life, as is the case with a lot of people from that long ago. His parents probably were commoners, and then he kind of pops up in the historical record when he entered school at the University of Oxford at the age of 17. He graduated with his degree in, eight, in 1580, and with an education in mathematics and astronomy, he jumped right into working life. And the job that he found right out of school was working for none other than Sir Walter Raleigh as a math tutor and in various other tasks as needed. And one of his first projects under Raleigh was the composition of a book which was titled Arcticon, which was apparently a navigational text. And I have to say apparently because no copy of that writing survives, so we don't really know entirely what was included there. At this point in history, soldier and explorer Sir Humphrey Gilbert, who was Raleigh's half-brother, was seen as something of an expert on the so-called New World of North America. Although most of his expeditions had failed, they had slowly drained off his coffers. By the time Gilbert died in 1583, Thomas Harriet had convinced Raleigh to continue England's exploration of North America. Harriet was instrumental in helping Raleigh to prepare for his colonizing expedition in 1585. We're going to talk about these a little bit more, but there's also more information about these things in the previous Sir Walter Raleigh episode. Yeah. People want that. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that's, uh, it's not as though Raleigh had no interest and then Thomas Harriet was like, we could do that. Uh, He was definitely interested, but Harriet was like, yes, dude, we can do this. For real. (laughs) I will help you. Uh, When Raleigh's Virginia expedition of that year set out from Plymouth, that was on April 9th, 1585, Harriet was aboard as the ship's scientific advisor which included some work in cartography, as well as giving navigational advice. And he was also there as Raleigh's representative, as Raleigh himself could not make the trip. So, in addition to his advisory role en route, once the ship arrived in North America, Harriet was to take stock of the land's economic potential. And Raleigh also asked Harriet to similarly assess the indigenous peoples that the expedition encountered. Harriet, along with another man named John White, carried out all these tasks, 
White mapped and sketched the land that they traveled, and Harriet made notes on all of it. White also made drawings of the native population, and Harriet gathered plants along the way as part of his report. He tried to note which ones could be monetized. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about conclusions he came to in just a moment. Harriet, for his part, seems to have had some pretty good relations with the indigenous populations. He was really adept at learning languages. Some of the, like, brief, like, blurbs about him will also say that he was, like, a linguist or a language scholar uh, because that was something that served him throughout his life. He kind of came to it because it made things easier uh, as he could then consult various texts in whatever his subject of interest was without needing to seek out translations. And he had picked up some Algonquin language from two Native Americans who had traveled to England before Harriet made his trip across the Atlantic. And then once he was in North America, he continued to improve his knowledge, specifically of Carolina Algonquin that was spoken along the eastern coast in the areas they were exploring. By the time assistance arrived at the Virginia colony in the form of Sir Francis Drake's 1586 expedition, Things with that 1585 group had become really tenuous, and Harriet and White were really eager to get back home, which they did in a hurry as soon as Drake could arrange it. While Raleigh arranged additional expeditions to the colonies, he moved Harriet onto other projects instead of sending him across the Atlantic again. Yeah, that colonization effort was considered a failure. Uh, An account of Harriet's experiences in Raleigh's expedition, a brief and true report of the newfound land of Virginia, was printed in 1588. As we all know, I love the crazy, long, nutty titles They're so of history, fun. and this one is a doozy. So <laughs> the full name of that book is A Brief and True Report of the Newfound Land of Virginia, of the Commodities and of the Nature and Manners of the Natural Inhabitants, discovered by the English colony there ceded by Sir Richard Granville, knight in the year 1585, which remained under the government of 12 months, at the special charge and direction of the Honorable Sir Walter Raleigh, Knight Lord Warden of the Stanneries, who therein hath been favored and authorized by Her Majesty and her letters patents, and then it had the attribution, this four book is made in English by Thomas Harriet, servant to the above-named Sir Walter, a member of the colony, and there employed in discovering. I'm tired after <laughs> getting through that whole name. It's really, um, it tickles me to look at the title page for that book because it is just the busiest mm-hmm. thing you can imagine. Uh, despite the fact that Thomas Harriet, who I feel like we should point out You'll see his name spelled a variety of ways if you go looking for it. Um, But despite his many writings and accomplishments that he made throughout his years, that was the only book of his that was published during his lifetime. So White illustrated this book, and it details the basics of their journey and includes discussion of what caused that colony effort to fail. Most of that boils down to the people involved really not being ready for just how difficult it was going to be, which we've had a lot of that story. (laughs) While for many, this failure was really damning to Raleigh's colonization efforts, Harriet makes the case that future efforts could address the problems from the 1585 voyage and that future attempts should be allowed to continue. And the book also delivers on the promise to report on the financial potential of colonizing in North America. The first part of the book is called Of Merchantable Commodities, and in it, Harriet breaks down the properties of a variety of resources that were observed on the journey. And he includes entries on grass silk, worm silk, flax and hemp, alum, red clay, pitch, tar, resin, and turpentine, sassafras, cedar, wine, 
oil, and furs. And in the wine entry, he mentioned specifically two types of grapes that grow naturally in Virginia that could be used to make wine. And under the fur entry, he specifically mentions otters, which is a little sad. Uh, he continues on with deer skins, iron, copper, pearls, sweet gums, dyes of diverse kinds, and sugar canes. The section concludes with the possibility of importing other commodities that could be planted in Virginia and thrive, and the high likelihood that there are also other potential resources native to the area, which surely had not yet been discovered. The second section of the book is titled, Of Such Commodities as Virginia is Known to Yield for Vittle and Sustenance of Man's Life, Usually Fed Upon by the Natural Inhabitants, As Also by Us During the Time of Our Abroad, and first of such as are sowed and husbanded. The section is not about goods to be exported or traded, but the resources that could be counted on to sustain a colony, and these included beans, peas, gourds, and various herbs, as well as root vegetables and fruits. Strawberries, mulberries, chestnuts, walnuts, and acorns are all mentioned. Harriet also described the planting practices he observed as carried out by the indigenous population and ways that those could be replicated on a larger scale. Later on in this section is a discussion of the wild game that could be caught in the area, including deer, conies, which some debate on whether that just meant, like, diff, slightly different rabbits, um, squirrels, and bears. And there's a second part of the beasts section that is just about birds, including turkeys, doves, partridges, cranes, swans, and geese. He also mentions parrots, falcons, and hawks, of which he writes, quote, although with us they be not used for meat, yet for other causes I thought good to mention. And then uh, there are seafood options that he mentions, including various fish, crustaceans, and mollusks. Uh I know that there are lots of people who call rabbits conies, so. Yeah, but then sometimes if you look it up, people will say, no, it's like a related rodent, but not exactly a rat. It really, it was just a word that got used a lot, and as a consequence, <laughs> it has brewed some debate. We'll talk about the final section of the book as well as its impact on both North America and Europe after we first pause for a quick sponsor break. <laughs> The third section of Harriet's book is called Of Such Other Things as Be Hooful for Those Which Shall Plant and Inhabit to Know Of with a Description of the Nature and Manners of the People of the Country. And that is exactly what you might expect. It's a guide of sorts for anyone trying to make a go of it in the colonies. It offers, for example, insights into what trees might be good for lumber and also what to expect from the native population and on and on. Harriet's characterization of the indigenous peoples is important because though he absolutely makes it clear that he finds them to, quote, show excellence of wit, he also mentions a lot of ideas that really telegraph the future for relations between the European colonists and North America's indigenous population. Here is the passage that really il illustrates this, quote, if there fall out any wars between us and them, what their fight is likely to be, we having advantages against them so many manner of ways as by our discipline, our strange weapons and devices else, especially by ordnance great and small, it might be easily imagined by the experience we have had in some places, the turning up of their heels against us in running away was their best defense." Yeah, he states pretty plainly that although he can recognize that the Native Americans exhibit their own ingenuity, they also seem to be in awe of the Europeans' mechanical achievements and that that is something that could be used to advantage by white settlers. 
One of the reasons we're talking in such detail about Harriet's book, and in particular these characterizations, is because this writing was hugely influential. It was published in multiple languages, and it became the informational text about North America for Europeans. So to some degree, it really laid the groundwork for the ways in which indigenous populations were viewed and subsequently treated by the colonists. Yeah, republished in so many different places, included in larger volumes of work about colonization and world exploration, like it would be plopped in as a chapter. It really, really was read by anyone interested in any kind of exploration from Europe into North America. And after Harriet returned from North America, he settled for a while in Ireland in an abbey on land that was owned by Sir Walter Raleigh. And that is where he worked on the manuscript of A Brief and True Report. He also surveyed Raleigh's Irish property claims. At this point, England was also colonizing Ireland after a particularly brutal land grab. Sir Humphrey Gilbert, that we mentioned earlier in particular, had been really incredibly ruthless when it came to killing non-combatants during the campaigns there as a means to victory and in order to seize more land. While working for Raleigh during this time, Harriet also expanded his efforts in map-making. He worked alongside famed English globemaker Emery Molyneux and with Belgian mapmaker Gerardus Mercator to assist in refining their efforts to be more accurate. In the 1590s, after more than 15 years in Sir Walter Raleigh's employ, Harriet moved to work instead for Henry Percy, 9th Earl of Northumberland, who was a friend of Sir Walter Raleigh. And this was due to the fact that Sir Walter Raleigh was mired in his own issues. Uh, his colony projects, both in Ireland and North America, had not really gone terribly well, and his secret marriage to Bess Throckmorton led Raleigh to fall out of favor with the Queen. We talked about all of this in our Beheading of Walter Raleigh episode, if you want to get the whole scoop on that. Um, and though Sir Walter Raleigh was able to regain his position at court eventually and kind of get his favor back, the instability of his fortunes just led Harriet to seek work elsewhere. But the two men did not seem to have any ill will between them over this change in employment. They stayed close friends for the rest of their lives. Harriet moved once again to land in a home that was granted to him by his patron. Percy gave Thomas Harriet an estate in Durham, England, as well as a home just west of London. He used the house that was conferred upon him as his workplace home, and he set up a lab there for his research. He continued to study mathematics and astronomy. Many of the areas in which he researched and experimented were things he had started while he was in Raleigh's employ, but in this new lab with a regular annual pension that was granted to him by Percy, he was able to explore these ideas more fully. Yeah, this is really the point at which he becomes a set man. Like, he doesn't have to worry about money. He doesn't have to worry about taking care of things. He can just focus on his work. Uh, and one thing that really starts to emerge when you look at Harriet's work is how one thing that he was interested tended to lead to another as his curiosity became his guide. So, for example, he had done some work studying ballistics uh, in part of his work for Sir Walter Raleigh where they were planning for uh, potential uh, military engagements, and that led him to then consider the physics of falling and the laws of motion. And these particular efforts actually paralleled the work that was being done by Galileo in Italy at the same time. This is the case with a lot of Harriet's work. He and Galileo were kind of like onto a lot of the same concepts. And the story goes that it was his work figuring out the best way to stack cannonballs on a ship's deck, which was an assignment that Raleigh had given to him, that led him to think about the structure of matter. He was onto the idea that matter was made up of smaller component parts, and that led him to be regarded with suspicion in certain circles. 
As early as the 1590s, being associated with Sir Walter Raleigh caused Raleigh's critics to seek out any possible scandal that they could regarding Harriet. And the best that they could clamp onto was the fact that he was an atomist, this idea that all things could be analyzed through their distinct elementary components. Uh, Atomism was seen by many at this time as an affront to Christianity, and soon a rumor began that Harriet was a conjurer and an atheist. Harriet himself never seemed to make any conclusive statement or include any notes in his known writing that he was anti-Christian or pro-atheism, but it was kind of the uh, decision of the rumor mill. Yeah. (laughs) It's like the rumors that maybe people were secretly Catholic. Right. In 1603, after Queen Elizabeth I died, Sir Walter Raleigh was imprisoned in the Tower of London under orders from King James I after being found guilty of conspiring to overthrow the new monarch. And Henry Percy also found himself in the Tower under King James I's rule. Percy was implicated in a tertiary way in the gunpowder plot, which was a failed effort to assassinate James I. Henry Percy's cousin, Thomas Percy, was an active conspirator in that plot, and it had been Henry who had appointed Thomas as a gentleman pensioner without express permission to do so from the king, and that had given Thomas traction in London to move forward with his plot. And for that misstep, Henry Percy stayed in the Tower of London for 16 years and paid a hefty fine. Naturally, with his two primary benefactors in hot water, Thomas Harriet was also looked on with a lot of suspicion. He was detained briefly under the charge of having cast the king's horoscope, but he was released after being only briefly imprisoned. After he regained his freedom, he served as a connection from Raleigh and Percy to the outside world. He also continued to live at Cyan House in the home that Percy had given him outside of London. While Raleigh was imprisoned, Harriet helped him with his massive History of the World writing project, and he looked after the education of Algernon Percy, Sir Henry Percy's firstborn son. He was the 10th Earl of Northumberland. I think it was his third child, but first son. Uh, And while his name is not as commonly known as many of his contemporaries to today's ears, Harriet was very well known and respected in his own lifetime, in part because of that book he wrote about North America. But Also in the scientific community, he and Johannes Kepler corresponded about lenses and optics beginning in 1606 as the two of them worked concurrently on unlocking the understanding of light refraction. And during this time, Harriet developed the formula that would eventually come to be known as Snell's Law or the Snell-Descartes Law, uh, which is defined as a relationship between the path taken by a ray of light in crossing the boundary or surface of separation between two contacting substances and the refractive index of each although it wasn't Harriet's version of that equation that became famous. Uh, That law is attributed to the Dutchman Willebrord Snell for discovering it in 1621. Harriet was completely onto it a decade earlier, although he was not the first either. Uh, Persian mathematician Ibn Sal described the universal relationship for refraction using ratios and the sign law all the way back in 984, beating both of the Europeans by a very wide 600-year margin. On September 22nd, 1607, Harriet used a cross-staff instrument to observe the passing of what would later come to be known as Halley's Comet, though Sir Edmund Halley wasn't born yet and would see the comet himself in its next pass in 1682. This further stoked his interest in optics. We're going to talk in just a moment about Harriet's unpublicized astronomical discoveries, but first, we are going to hear from one of the sponsors that keeps this show going. (music) 
Unsurprisingly, all of that interest in light refraction and optics that we talked about before the break was part of an increased interest in telescopes. By 1609, Harriet had started working in earnest with telescopes, both acquiring them and making his own, and for the next four years in particular, he made a great number of significant astronomical observations with them. One of the most important things that Harriet did, and wasn't fully accredited until recently, was to observe the moon through a telescope and then make drawings of the lunar surface while he was working to try to make sense of it. His earliest known drawing of the moon is from July 26, 1609 on the Julian calendar. That date is significant because it puts Harriet's work on the moon's observation a few months ahead of Galileo's, although Galileo is usually credited with being the first. To be fair, Harriet's lunar drawings are incredibly rudimentary. If you just looked at them and you did not have the context of someone saying, that is the moon, (laughs) it might be something you couldn't figure out. Uh, They all just kind of look like circles with mystery squiggles scrawled on them. But by 1613, he had produced two much more detailed moon maps, uh, which may be the first instances of astronomical cartography. I will also tell you that I decided while researching this that I am getting one of those as a tattoo. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah, if you, uh, they are much more recognizably the moon than the earlier drawings. Yeah, and even so, I mean, he, those are criticized as not really getting the topography exactly right, Mm -hmm. but it's still like the first time someone tried to capture it in map form. Yeah. In December of 1610, Harriet was the first person to observe sunspots through a telescope, and this too happened at about the same time that Galileo was making similar observations. Harriet's drawings of these are similar to his moon sketches. They're almost inscrutable in terms of what they are supposed to be if you don't know that these are sunspots. They just sort of look like blorpy dots in a circle. Yeah, (laughs) you would think somebody spilled something on that. They're really, there's no detail. (laughs) Well, and sometimes sunspots do just look like somebody spilled something on that. Right, so without any context. Yeah, if somebody just held it up to you with no, you'd be like, I don't, did somebody, I don't know what that is. Did you find it somewhere? Um, It is unclear exactly why Harriet didn't publicize his work, particularly these various pieces of potentially history-making astronomy. One common theory is that because he was in pretty good financial standing, he just did not have the compulsion or the need to seek attention for his work, which would have come with financial benefit. Uh, Galileo, on the other hand, kind of needed the cash. Uh, And the fact that his two high-profile friends and benefactors were both in prison at the time, may have also been a factor as well. He might have wished to minimize public attention for fear that it would just stir up problems, either that he would be seen as suspicious again or that it would cause problems for the two of them. In 1613, Thomas Harriet developed an ulcer on his left nostril, and then the problem progressed over the next two years with ulcers developing on his lips and nose. The king's physician, Sir Theodore Turquette de Mayerne, saw Harriet to examine the problem on May 28th of 1615 and diagnosed it as cancer. The doctor noted that the patient seemed melancholy and made mention in his write-up that Harriet was the person who first brought tobacco from Virginia. This is possibly the first time somebody made the connection between tobacco use and cancer, at least in writing. Yeah, it was notable that he kind of was discussing this particular problem and then brought up the tobacco thing. It's uh, it's an interesting connection that I think, I don't know if he was particularly insightful or if other doctors were thinking similar things, but this is one of the first evidences we have of someone actually writing it down. In 1618, Harriet watched as his friend and supporter, Sir Walter Raleigh, was executed by beheading. 
Harriet's health had continued to worsen so that by that year, the only things that he really noted in his personal papers, and this was a man that kept a lot of notes throughout his life, were the death of Raleigh and the observation of a comet. In 1621, Harriet succumbed to skin cancer. He died on July 2nd in the home of Thomas Buckner. He had never married or had any children, and he was buried in the church of St. Christopher Lestocks on Threadneedle Street near Buckner's London residence. The Great Fire of 1666 destroyed this gravesite, and today it's the Bank of England's headquarters. Yeah, that always cracks me up. It shows up in almost anything you read where they're like, he was buried here. Now it's the Bank of England. <laughs> uh, Harriet bequeathed his telescopes to his executors and his scientific papers to Henry Percy with a note that they should be edited and prepared for publication by a longtime acquaintance, Nathaniel Torperley. He wanted most of his non-scientific personal notes related to Raleigh and other deceased persons to be buried. While Harriet asked to have his work published after he died, he unfortunately hadn't really prepared his research to that end. So this was just a really big ask, and it did not really happen, with one exception. This was really a pity because he not only had a four-decade-long career, but the mathematicians and scientists who survived him weren't able to then build on his work without having access to his notes. He had assembled a manuscript for a book titled Application of the Analytical Art to Solving Algebraic Equations. That book was published 10 years after his death and introduced the greater than and less than symbols, as well as that long horizontal brace that covers terms that are affected by a radical sign. Some histories attribute these symbols to Harriet, although others say that these elements were inclusions from the editor that prepared the manuscript for publication rather than things that Harriet himself developed. Yeah, he sometimes, that that book will also be credited with inventing, like, the dot between two things as a a multiplication symbol. But there's... That also may just be a different way that numbers were separated for clarity. Sure. Um, So... Maybe, maybe not. Uh, When the Royal Society of London was founded in 1660, one of its first initiatives was an effort to recover the lost work of Harriet. Because, again, he was known in his lifetime, so people were cognizant of the fact that when he had died 40 years before that, they had lost some important research. Uh, For seven years from the time that society received its royal charter from Charles II in 1662 up until 1669, the whereabouts of Harriet's notes were investigated. There were a lot of inquiries made, but it was a fruitless effort, and eventually that project was abandoned. At that point, it was believed that Harriet's work was gone, and that remained the belief of the scientific community for more than a century. In 1784, though, there was a surprise breakthrough of sorts. Hungarian-born astronomer Franz Zaver, Baron von Zach, had traveled to England to work for the Saxon ambassador in London. That was John Maurice, Count of Brühl. And that happened in 1783. And while he was at Pentworth Castle in Sussex, von Zach found a number of Thomas Harriet's manuscripts at the bottom of a trash pile in a stable. Yeah, that property was still owned by Henry Percy's descendants, Uh, So presumably those papers had just been shuffled around for a while and someone who didn't know what they were just tossed them aside. And this find was, of course, significant because von Zach saw that Harriet's work had put him ahead of other astronomers of his time, including Kepler and Galileo. And the Baron parlayed his discovery into a tour of Europe where he talked about Harriet, but he never really took the work to the next level to do an in-depth analysis of what he had found. Like, he never published a paper on it. And the excitement over finding these these papers and manuscripts died down with no new revelations or write-ups. And von Zach 
took a new job working for the royals of Saxe-Gotha in 1786, and at that point, he seems to have moved on from his Harriet interest. So while other interested parties made some efforts at really studying Harriet's work, it was not until the 20th century that the insights he had and the observations he made really came into their own and became the focus of study so much so that there have been numerous Thomas Harriet symposia going on since the late 1960s. In July 2009, Harriet's lunar drawings were part of an exhibit at the West Sussex Record Office in Chichester. And the lunar maps are cared for by the West Sussex Record Office. They keep them pretty much full-time, although they are the property of one of Henry Percy's descendants. So we mentioned up at the top of the podcast, this episode is part of the Apollo pod crawl that was organized by the Museum of Flight in Seattle as part of their celebration of the first crewed moon landing's 50th anniversary. You can check out our show notes for links to the other participating podcasts, including the museum's own Flight Deck podcast. I think we're probably the last episode of this pod crawl coming out, so all the others should be available by the time we get to this point. I think so and hope so. Um, I mean, I hope that's accurate. So, uh, but that is, as the of the moment we record it, we're still waiting on a couple of, of yes. groups to report in. So, uh, yeah, but those are all going to be super fun to check out if you are into space history, which uh, I know many of our listeners are because we always get great responses to our space episodes and our uh, discussions of NASA and space exploration and astronomy, then you will probably want to check those out. Yeah. It might make for a fun day of just having space time. Love it. Um, I have two postcards, and one of them is going to blow Tracy's mind. Okay. I'm not even letting her see it. She's in the studio with me today, which is not often the case since we work separately in different cities. But uh, it is from our uh, listener, Kendra. And some of her stuff is obscured on her postcard, but the postcard itself is spectacular. Uh, She writes, I recently listened to your podcast about Marie Laurencin, and I was so surprised to hear her work was from the early 20th century. I had recently seen her work in an online forum, and it honestly would fit in basically amongst, beautifully amongst today's crowd of Insta artists. I agree. Um, Thank you so much for sharing her awesome background. Uh, And then it looks like some water damage on the postcard. Here's what's amazing. Kendra did a watercolor for the postcard. What? In the style of Marie Laurencin. And it's portraits of us. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And it's awesome. It's upside down. (laughs) That's so great. It's really fabulous. There's a kitty on it, too. There is also her cat. Uh, That is her cat, Dinah, which I wonder if that's named after the Dinah in Alice in Wonderland, who is also a kitty. I love it. It's really, really spectacularly fun. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for uh, sharing your art with us, Kendra, because this is just one of those, um, you know, we talked about on the episode. Art is great. It touches people. Um, and I love it. Uh, we also got a really, really fun, cute postcard from Yellowstone National Park, which is from our listener, Amanda June. Uh, she writes, hello, girls. My mom and I took a trip to Yellowstone, and I introduced her to your podcast, On the Drive. Your podcast is one of my favorites, and it was a joy to get to share it with my mom. Uh, that's just super sweet, and I love that you are spreading the history love. And also, again, every time somebody's on a trip and they write us a postcard, yeah. I'm very touched by it because I never have my act together to send postcards to people I know and love in my life. So it's very meaningful to me that someone would make that effort. Yeah. Um, Um, I I am not often in this office, and one of the things that I have done on this trip to this office 
since I'm never here, I don't have my own permanent desk anymore. And so I had to go through the things that had been boxed up from my desk. And I was just overwhelmed by, I mean, there were so many uh, postcards and letters and little, uh, like, little trinkets and things that um, I had not, I had, in some cases, I had seen them and had put them to the side. And in some cases, I had not seen them yet. I was just totally blown away by all of these things. Yeah. Uh, so thank you so much, everybody who has sent us all of these things over the years. There were a couple of things that were uh, things I had put aside from, like, five years ago that I had not looked at since then. It's just just really incredible and humbling. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to try to remember to put a picture of this uh, hand-painted postcard on our uh, show page, along with our our links to the Apollo pod crawl. Uh, If I don't, you can bug us on social media and remind me. Yeah. if you would like to write to us, you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. If you would like to bug us on social media and go, hey, Holly, you forgot to put that picture in there. Uh, that's uh, Missed in History is our handle pretty much everywhere. You can also visit our homepage, which is MissedInHistory.com. And there, every episode of the show that has ever been made exists together, as well as show notes for any of the episodes Tracy and I have worked on together. You can also subscribe to the podcast. This seems like a cool thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> you can do that on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is that you like to listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 